go ahead and turn with me, if you would, in your Bible to uh, the book of Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, and you can hold your spot in Philippians like for quite a few weeks. We are uh, in the midst of a series now. We started last Sunday moving through the book of Philippians. If you miss a message, I hope you don't, but if you have to, then those are on our website. They're on our church app as well, so be sure to check those out. But we're moving through Philippians. I love preaching through books of Scripture, and uh, you know, oftentimes here, whenever I preach, it'll be a topical series. I'll preach through a certain topic, and uh, as we've done here more recently. But then there are times where we'll preach through an entire book of the Bible. Some of those have been very long. When I went through the book of John years ago, I think it was 66 messages over a year in the book of John. And uh, this one is not going to be that long. This is only four chapters. And uh, and yet, it's just such a a different feel when you move through a passage of Scripture. And so I hope for you, uh, as we preach through the book of Philippians, I hope you don't mind writing in your Bibles, because it's a great place to jot down some notes. And uh, the goal is not just to learn something more about the Bible, about this book specifically, but also to put some handles to it so that you can leave here putting into practice what it is that we dealt with in that passage each week. And so the book of Philippians, a phenomenal book of scripture, and uh, we dealt with it starting last Sunday. And uh, again, even if you miss a week, we'll just pick up kind of where we left off and so uh, piece it all together as we go. So many of you are familiar with this, uh, this phrase on the screen behind me, no pain, no gain. You probably had that screamed in your face as a middle schooler in PE class, whenever that football coach who was also the PE coach was in your face telling you why you needed to work harder. You probably did have a coach on the ball field or on a basketball court or on a baseball field somewhere who uh, maybe threw this particular phrase out there for you, uh, whether it was on the court or on the field or in the weight room. Uh, maybe you've been in a in a spin class, and you've had an overly aggressive spin class uh, uh, um, leader who, who, who just absolutely screamed this at you as you were trying to make it through that 60-minute uh, session in the spin class. Regardless, we're all familiar with this. And I don't think any of those coaches or any of those instructors or anybody really wanted us to have pain. I don't think they just delighted in pain, except for maybe the spin class instructors. But aside from them, I think what they wanted us to do was to understand there's a link there between growth and, and being pushed out of our comfort zone. Sometimes it's that pain that ultimately makes us stronger, whether it's on a ball field, whether it's in a weight room. Now I want to take that illustration, and, and it doesn't carry over perfectly, but I do want to drop it over in somewhat of the, the kind of a spiritual arena in our lives, because there are times that we go through painful experiences in our lives, right? We, uh, we, we live in a fallen world. We live in a hard world. We live in a world with harsh, rough edges. And even though God didn't create it that way, it was because of sin that when sin came in, ultimately, in Genesis chapter 3, ever since that time, we felt the hard edges of this life. We've felt the hard edges of this world, where we go through difficult circumstances. We go through hardship, even suffering. And and for many of you, I mean, all of us in this room, we've experienced hardship in our lives. Again, it's because of the world we live in. It's the fallout from sin. But all of us can relate. Maybe some of you even can relate a little more acutely today because you're in the midst of a hardship. You're in the midst of a difficult circumstance. And I think what I want us to recognize here in this passage, what we're going to see is that in a different way from that PE coach, in a different way from that, from that, uh, you know, that ball coach or that, that spin instructor, there is still gain to come whenever we walk through the hardships of life. Whether for you, maybe it's uh, financial issues that come in life. You know, we live in, in the midst of a day now where things are not always so easy as it relates to the economy. Maybe you felt the pinch personally in your household as a result of the difficulties in our economic situation here as, as uh, uh, living in this country. And, and if you have certain financial issues in your life, 
and you're married, then sometimes those financial issues become marriage issues to a degree. They become family issues. There are adjustments that end up coming. There's stress that affects everybody in the family. Maybe for you, it's not the hardship of finances. Maybe for you, it's related to your workplace. Maybe you've been laid off. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe your career has completely changed. Maybe you've moved from one city to an X and all the stressors that go along with that. Maybe you face health issues in your life or, or some relational breakdowns that have come in your life. Regardless of what it may be, all of us can relate, right, to what it means to walk through challenging circumstances that come in our lives. And what Paul is going to help us to understand here, as the Holy Spirit has inspired him to write this, what we're going to see is that Paul understands that there can be value, there can be gain that comes even through some of the painful circumstances that come in our lives. And here's the thing, Jesus told us that difficulties are going to come. John 16, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, you're going to have trouble. I mean, he told us that himself, John 16, 33. Job, in Job chapter 5, listen to what it says here. In Job chapter 5, verse 7, Job is writing. We all know a, a good bit of his story. Job chapter 5, he says, For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Right? Man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. So uh, when you go to your backyard later today or later this week, right, because it's all the depth of winter for us now that it's below 70 degrees, and when you go out to your yard and you make a fire, whether it bumps back up to 90 again later on or goes back down into the, to, you know, ultimately to the 50s or 40s or whatever, you know, when you make that fire, I want you to take a step back from it in your backyard at that fire pit, and I want you, want, want you to watch where the sparks go. They're going to fly upward, and they have for centuries, right? That's the way they work. That's the way they go. They go that direction. They go up. Job says, as surely as the sparks of a fire fly upward, man was born for trouble, right? It's going to come. These hardships are going to come. But there's a principle here that I want us to pull out from, from, um, for, from this conversation, and we're going to see it demonstrated in this passage. And the principle is this, and I hope you'll jot it down. You may want to jot it down even in your Bible right here because it applies beginning in verse 12 in just a moment. We're going to see this, that God doesn't delight, right? He doesn't delight in our difficult circumstances. God is not in heaven. When we go through times of struggle or challenge, hardship, difficulty, he's not, God is not sitting back in the, you know, the far corner of heaven with his arms crossed, just, you know, like, yep, I've been waiting for this day where he can suffer, right? I've been waiting for this day. I want to throw a lightning bolt down there and just make her really have a hard time. God's not acting that way. He doesn't delight when his children struggle. He doesn't delight when we suffer. He doesn't delight when we go through hardship. That's the byproduct of sin in a fallen world. But what God does do is he desires to take those times of difficulty, those hardships, those circumstances, and he desires to leverage them ultimately for good. In a way, differently than in the weight room, we can say, because of the pain, there was gain. And Paul's going to nail that right here in Philippians chapter 1 as we begin to jump in in verse 12 here in just a moment. So, so let, me, let me give a little bit of a kind of a rehash of what we covered last Sunday real quickly, just for a minute or two. We'll go through all the details of it. But we began looking at this passage of Scripture, chapter 1, verse 1. And in those first 11 verses, one of the things that we pulled out was that God desires that we partner with him in furthering the message of the gospel. That God wants us to literally partner with him as the gospel goes forward. One of the, that's what came out very clearly, chapter 1, beginning in those first 11 verses. The second thing we saw from last Sunday was that God also wants us to partner with him, not just in furthering the gospel, but also he wants us to partner with him as he molds and shapes us on the inside, right? His desire, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, is to conform us into the image of who? Into the image of Jesus, 
That's what he wants to do. He wants to mold and shape us into the image of Christ. And again, it's not that he has this little Jesus box, right, that looks like Jesus, and he stuffs you into it, and he starts pushing you down in there, and kicks you down into the, I want to make you look like, ah, make you look like Jesus. That's not the way he's operating, right? He does it lovingly. But there are times we come to the end of ourselves. There are times where we feel the harsh edges of life. And it's even in those circumstances that he's at work molding and shaping us into the image of Jesus. And he wants us to partner with him to further the gospel. And he wants us to partner with him as he molds and shapes us that we don't resist him, but that we, we work with him. We surrender so that he can shape us into the image of who Jesus is. So here's what's going to happen today. We get to verse 12 today. We're going to cover verse 12 through verse 18 this morning. And we're going to see both of those components, working with God to further the gospel, working with God to be molded into who he wants us to be. Both of those things are going to be put to the real test in real life, in Paul's life and ministry. And beginning in verse 12, he's going to walk us through. This is kind of like, you know, last Sunday's message, part two, in a way. Uh, We're going to see Paul put all of this into practice. The gospel's going forward. Paul's going to be molded, and it's all going to come through hardship ultimately in his life, something to which every single one of us can relate because we've all been there. So let's jump in. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to begin moving through this passage, verse 12 through verse 18, and uh, we're going to give a little summary at the end of it, and I'll give you three application points real quickly at the end. Three questions to ask whenever you walk through times of struggle or difficult circumstances or hardship. So chapter one, let's jump in here, verse 12. <clears throat> so Paul is writing to the Christians in the city of Philippi, <clears throat> and he says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now let me, let me pause there for a second. Let me give a little backstory. So Paul is writing this letter to the group of Christians in the city of Philippi, a city of about 10 to 20,000 people. It's a small town compared to what we're accustomed to, even here in our area. It's uh, about 10 to 20,000 people. Paul had planted this church about a dozen years, give or take, about a dozen years before. All that's laid out in Acts chapter 16. He, uh, he spoke with a woman named Lydia who was in a Bible study outside the city, down uh, kind of close to the river. She trusted Jesus. And as a result of that, Lydia, the first follower of Jesus in Europe that we have recorded, uh, ultimately would become part, we would assume, of the first church planted in Europe as well, the church in Philippi. And we find there that Paul is now writing this letter about a dozen years later. It's around, 80, uh, around 61 or 62 AD. And as he writes this letter to the believers in Philippi, the thing that he starts with here in verse 12, he says, and it's interesting, the wording, he says, I want you to know, brethren. Now, now this is Paul just giving them a little bit of assurance that he's doing okay. Remember, I know you know this, but just remember, put this all in context. 2,000 years ago, he couldn't whittle off a text to the believers in Philippi. He's more than likely in a Roman prison, a Roman jail, right? That's more where most scholars believe he is. He's definitely imprisoned because he references it. Most believe he's in Rome. <clears throat> and he wasn't able to FaceTime, make a phone call, shoot a text out, send an email to say, hey, everybody, I'm doing okay, right? He would have to either trust in word of mouth or he would have to send a letter. 
And so in this letter, it kind of harkens back when you think about it to the stories maybe you've read before, going back to World War II, World War I here in our own country, you know, where moms would get letters from their, from their sons, you know, off at war. And it would maybe arrive weeks, if not months later, and it would say, you know, I'm doing fine, dear mother. You know, you think about those, those letters from the Revolutionary War and all those things. It's kind of what Paul's doing. He's sending this letter, 12 verses in. He says, I just want you to know, Philippian uh, uh, brothers and sisters, he says, I want you to know that I'm doing okay. All right? He's going to give more detail in a second, but overall, I'm doing okay. In fact, I would go so far as to say that my circumstances, what's his circumstance? Being locked up for preaching the gospel, being transferred to this Roman jail, that my circumstances have actually turned out for the progress of the gospel, the greater progress of the gospel. In fact, it's kind of like Paul saying, had I not been locked up, there were certain benefits of the gospel going forward that would not have happened. He's like, this is actually a good thing. I'd rather not be here. I wish that my freedom wasn't taken away to the degree that it has been. I wish that I could be with you guys, or I wish I could be traveling the world, sharing the gospel. This is where I am. I wouldn't opt for this place, but God is at work here. Even in this prison, even in my life, God is at work. And the gospel, man, I'm telling you, he's saying this in this letter, the gospel is, prog- is progressing. It is going forward right? Good things are happening, he would say. And, and, and he's setting their hearts at ease. So, so what does his imprisonment look like? Well, it's cool because we can get a little book from, a little look from the book of Acts chapter 28. Flip over to Acts 28 real quick, if you would. Acts chapter 28. So if Paul is indeed in a Roman prison, as most believe, we get a little glimpse from Acts 28 of what this might have looked like. Acts 28 captures Paul's transfer to the city of Rome. It was a pretty dramatic made-for-TV transfer, right, in in Acts 28 as he made it ultimately to Rome. But there are some little clues here that we read as, as Luke writes in Acts. There are some clues here of what this imprisonment in Rome may have looked like. Acts chapter 28, verse 16. Acts 28, 16, it says, When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. One part of his imprisonment that comes to light now, begins to appear, is that he was with a soldier who was guarding him specifically. He probably could not do anything without leaving the presence of this particular Roman soldier. Go down to verse 20. Paul says, for this reason, therefore, I requested to see you, to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. So now Paul gives a little bit more information. He's, he's with this soldier, more than likely out of whose presence he can never find himself, who's guarding him. Now he mentions the wearing of a chain. Go down to verse 30. It says, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. So you put all that together, you mash it all together, and what you see is that if Paul was in Rome, then he is, he's lost his freedom. There is some freedom there. He, he has his own rented quarters. And I know that's kind of foreign to us to imagine how that plays out. But he's also in chains, and he also has a Roman soldier with him at all times, right? He, he's, he's imprisoned. He doesn't have the freedom that he once had. And when you go back to Philippians now, chapter 1, Paul says it's that experience, it's that imprisonment, it's this hardship, this difficult circumstance, this suffering, he says, that has actually turned out for the greater progress 
of the gospel. So how, how on earth could being locked up in prison, chained to a Roman soldier, how on earth could that actually benefit the message of the gospel? Paul gives us about three different ways. Look in verse 13. Here's one of them. He says, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian guard and to everyone else. So who's the Praetorian Guard? Let's, let's break this down a little bit. So the, the Praetorian Guard was a part of the Roman army. They were somewhat of like an elite force. They, were, they received higher pay. They were paid better. They were considered a, a, as a higher status of soldier. But primarily throughout their history, their purpose was to provide like bodyguard service, for the most part, to the emperor of Rome and to certain dignitaries. Somehow, Paul, whether it's because he was treated as a special case or whether he was just in a, reg- re- uh, in a region of the prison here in Rome where they were nearby, Paul says that it's this Praetorian guard, this kind of higher level elite soldier status group within the Roman army. It's these people, he says in verse 13, who have become, uh, uh, who become well-versed well in his experience, right? Paul says literally, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known. Not just through that elite status of of soldier, but to everyone else as well. Paul says, here I am, locked up in this Roman jail, and it seems as though all of this elite status of soldier and everybody else knows why I'm here. He says, it's for the cause of Christ. And one of the ways that Paul can say, follow me on this. One of the ways that Paul can say that my imprisonment, my hardship has progressed the gospel is because, let's link this together, is because all these people are seeing my life that never would have been exposed to my life before. And Paul's not saying I'm some super saint, right? Come worship me. He's not saying that. He's just saying, here I am in prison and I'm living out the gospel. I'm living out my faith. I'm trusting the Lord. I'm whistling off letters to Ephesus and to Philippi and to other places so that believers can be encouraged. And they see the life that I live and they see the, the faith and the trust and the humility and the hope that I have. They see all that in me. And Paul says, man, this is good. This is really good. The gospel is progressing because these people get to be exposed to my life and I am sold out to Jesus. And one of the ways Paul can say, I mean, you can see it right there in the text. He says that, the God, that all of this has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel because people who would not have been are watching my life and they see Jesus there. Let me ask you a question. When you go through times of struggle or hardship or, or even call it suffering, you know, you've lost a loved one. You, you, you've, you've seen your career upended. You, you've got relational strife. You're walking through those things that keep you up at night and raise your blood pressure and, and, and tighten up your, your stress. And your, I mean, when you're walking through all that, do people see Jesus through your response? Do they see Jesus through our response? Paul can say, I'm locked up. This is not good. But it is good. Because people see Jesus here. The gospel is progressing. Look down in verse 14. He he shifts gears a little bit. Now he's not talking about the guards that are guarding him and the other people that are watching him. Now he's talking about the church. Paul says, verse 14, and that most of the brethren, those are the Christians, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Paul says the second way that the gospel is progressing through my hardship, my imprisonment, is that 
the believers that see me, they've been emboldened, they've been encouraged to ultimately speak God's word without fear in their lives. I think about it this way. Maybe you've run maybe you've run a marathon, maybe you've run a half, maybe you've run a 10k, 5k. Right? And, and imagine the person that's 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 in that. They're, they've worked for it, but they've never experienced it. They've trained hard, but they've never run this marathon. And they're at about mile 18, mile 20. They're, they're hitting the wall, right? The wall that everybody talks about. And let's just say for a moment that's you. And you're about to think, you know what? 20 miles isn't that bad. <laughs> yeah, never done 20 in my life before. And I've done 20 already. I know there are six more to go. But, uh, you know, let's just, let's just call it quits here. You know, I, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to make it to the end where I get a banana and a chocolate milk for free, right? I, I, I don't think I can do another step. I'm ready to give up. And, and you hear from behind you the... <gasps> and the footsteps, right? And they get up to you and you look and it's, it's a guy about 60 years older than you are, okay? And he's just huffing it, right? And you think he's not gonna make it another step. No chocolate milk for him, just an ER trip, right? He's not gonna make it to the end. And, and yet there he goes and he's just, he's just moving on past you and he keeps going and going and going. What do you think? You think, man, if, if he can do it, <laughs> then I can do it. And, and you just kind of pick it up a little bit more and there's something, there's like this rocky bong, dun, 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 and you just pick it up and you keep going, right? And, and you make it to the very end. Why? Because you saw somebody else who was feeling what you felt who didn't give up, right? We got a ministry here we call Grief Share. And through the years, dozens and dozens and dozens of people have benefited from Grief Share, and what we hear consistently when people go through this 13-week um, class uh, experience is not as much that it was the reading material that helped them or the videos that helped them, the Bible study that helped them. They say all that was a help. But man, what we really appreciated was coming there every week and being around the table with three, four, eight, ten other people who were in the same valley as we are who give us courage to keep going. Right, when I was walking along that journey of grief and I was thinking I'm having a good day and it was the sight, it was the smell, it was the reminder, it was that song, it was whatever it was that just sent them down the, down the manhole cover, right? The open, the open manhole. And they thought, I don't know if I'm ever gonna make it through this grief. And they went midweek, sat around the table, with others who said, man, we know your struggle. And we've not just been there, we are there. And we're going to make it through. That's what Paul's saying. He says, I'm in prison. I am in chains because I obeyed <laughs> and shared the gospel. But one way that this has proven to progress the gospel has been one that people that would not have been exposed to my life otherwise see Jesus in me. That's a win. And number two, there are believers, whether in Philippi or Ephesus or somewhere else, who know that I'm in chains. They know I'm in chains for the cause of Christ, and they're emboldened in their faith. In fact, they're even proclaiming the Word of God with greater courage without fear, like never before. Verse 15. And then Paul says in verse 15, he gives a third way the gospel advance. He says, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. All right. Paul, Paul says 
A third way that the gospel is progressed is that people are proclaiming it. They're preaching it. But then he makes an interesting statement here. He says some are preaching Christ, and it's not a different gospel. Paul would have repudiated that. He would have just squashed that. You're not going to come preaching another gospel. He dealt with that in Galatians, right? He said they're preaching the same gospel about what it means to know God through Jesus, but some of them are preaching with a wrong motivation from envy and from strife. And then there are the others who are preaching the gospel from a perspective of goodwill. He adds a little bit of commentary to that. Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, the latter do it, the ones that are doing it right, out of love. They're proclaiming the gospel out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. It's as though they're saying, Paul, man, we're preaching the same message. You may be locked up, but man, we are still in the field and we are still, still putting it out there. We are still advancing the gospel. Right. And they're preaching it out of the right motivations. They're preaching it because they're partnering with Paul, because they love people. They want Jesus to be known. But then he says in verse 17, he says, the former, the one with the wrong motivations, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So, so I think about this. Paul didn't say, he, he didn't say what the selfish ambition was. And when you think about how can somebody preach the gospel with a wrong motivation, Paul gives a little bit of insight. He says they're thinking that they're going to cause me distress in my imprisonment. And here's what I, uh, this is where my mind goes. Maybe there were some preaching the gospel that were thinking it was a big contest. You know what? Now that Paul's off the, off the streets, finally locked up, maybe we can build a name for ourselves as, as those who advance the message of the gospel. It'd be like two churches, right, in the same town, both growing, one falls on hardship, Maybe they have disunity. Maybe there's a bunch of grumbling backbiting. The church begins to splinter and fragment. And the other church in town's like, you know, secretly thinking, oh, great, maybe we'll get some of their people and we'll grow even bigger. It's a horrible way to think about ministry. But it kind of sounds like that's what Paul's looking at. You know, I'm locked up here. The gospel's going forward. It's getting preached. It's getting preached more than it was before. Some are doing it because of right reasons. Others are doing it because of wrong reasons. I love verse 18. What a godly perspective. He says in verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, right? Whether for good motives or wrong motives, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Paul cared about the gospel going forward, period. Right? That, that, that's what he wanted. And if his hardship contributed to that, I mean, this, is, this, is a, this is a hard perspective for us to embrace. But for Paul, he said, if my hardship contributes to the gospel going forward, I call it a win. You know? So last, uh, last Sunday, we did a little history lesson. I encourage you not to gloss over for the four-minute history lesson when we laid out the details about the history behind the city of Philippi and the Roman Empire. So today we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're, we're not doing a history lesson. We're, we're, going to, we're going to structure a sentence. We're going to do a little grammar sentence structuring. Everybody in with me on this? All right, you with me? So clear the glaze. Just follow me. Follow along. So here's a summary of this whole passage we just looked at. Paul mentions his imprisonment. This is his difficult circumstance. You'll notice that it was out of that imprisonment that Paul makes the comment that because of his chains, because of his imprisonment, there was actually a good thing that came out of it, that the 
progress of the gospel increased, because of his imprisonment, there was a greater spread of the gospel. There was a progression of the gospel. He mentions three ways that happened. He mentions one way is that others would see his life, the Praetorian Guard and everyone else, who would not have been exposed to it before. They would have seen Jesus in his life. He said that believers in other areas had courage and boldness to proclaim the gospel. And then finally, it was just preached. It was flat out preached by people, some with wrong motives, some with right motives. But when the dust settled at the end of the day, what he could say was that over all of that, Christ was ultimately proclaimed. And it's interesting because if you start in this diagram from the very beginning, everything is good. At the very top, Christ is proclaimed. Uh, The gospel is progressing through his life and others' lives. It's being spread and shared. But when you bring it all the way down, the reason all that good stuff happened, it all starts with a hardship, with a difficult circumstance, with with, with an experience in Paul's life that brought him to a place of difficulty, loss of freedom, maybe even more, maybe outright suffering and persecution there in that Roman cell. But all of the good stuff happened because of his imprisonment, his suffering. It's not that God was sitting back there in the corner of heaven saying, I love to watch him suffer. It's not the way God does. It was that God was taking the hardship and the difficult circumstance, and he was leveraging it for good to the point to where Paul could say, you know what? There's greater work for the gospel being done because of my circumstance, I think Paul would say, than if my circumstance was different. So we've all been there, right? Maybe not prison in a Roman cell, but we've all been to that place where we faced hardship, where we faced difficulties, where it seems as though life is unraveling faster than we can keep up with. We've all been to that particular place. So whenever we find ourselves at that place, what are some of the implications? I think there's, there are three questions that we can ask. You may want to jot these down. That's up to you. But I think the next time we find ourselves at a place of difficulty, I think it can be helpful for us to ask ourselves maybe these three questions. Number one, how can my response to this hardship put Jesus on display? Paul's response put Jesus on display to the Roman guards, Praetorian guards, everyone else. How can my response when I'm in hardship When I'm in a tight, difficult circumstance, how can my response put Jesus on display? As a follower of Jesus, I hope that you care about that, right? We should. How can my response put Jesus on display? Second question we can ask ourselves, have I prayed for God to help me see his perspective in my circumstance? I'll tell you, for me, whenever I'm going through a difficult circumstance, it's very easy to just focus on me right? It's probably the same for you, right? God, get me out of this. God, just rescue me. God, make this stop, right? And we focus on ourselves. What we often don't ever pray is, is, Lord, help me to see your perspective. When Paul took a step back and he looked at his circumstance from God's perspective, he saw the gospel advancing like nobody's business, right? People are being exposed to it. People are preaching it. Christians have courage, Right? So a lot of times we go through hardship, whether it's financial or relational or health-related or career-related. Career, uh, Regardless, when we go through those hardships, God, how can I see from your perspective? What is your perspective here? And then number three, how can I proclaim Christ and the gospel in my circumstance? When I go through hardship and people see my faith and my trust and my joy and my peace and my hope, how can I leverage that difficult circumstance and help them to see it's, all these things are not in my life because I'm somebody super, you know, able to, you know, apply this. It's because God has given it to me. And how can I proclaim Christ there? 
Remember the verse I quoted earlier, John 16, 33? Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. I wasn't quite fair with you when I quoted that part of that verse. There's more to that verse. John 16, 33, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, for I've overcome the world. Remember the passage in Job 5, verse 7, for man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. There's more, verse 8, verse 9, he says, but as for me, I would seek God, and I would place my cause before God, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. Jesus would say it. Job would say it. Paul would say it. Then when we go through times of hardship, tribulation, trouble, suffering, God doesn't delight in it, but he wants to use it for good. And often the way he does it is to show himself through our response and to get the gospel where it needs to go. Heads bowed and eyes closed today. No one looking around. I just want to talk to you for just a second as we close. As Adam comes, heads bowed, eyes closed. Maybe for some of you today, you can say, you know what, Brooks, this is an amazing passage of Scripture, but I'm not really right there. I'm not in the midst of any significant hardship. Yeah, I got some struggles in my life, but nothing of real significance. I, I can't say that I'm a place where I'm really between a rock and a hard place where I'm suffering. Could you maybe just pray for others in this room, maybe even closer to where you're seated than you think, that are going through the valley and it's dark and it's deep? Could you just take a pause right right now for a moment? And if this applies more to you because you're there, could you just pray that they're able to, to put Christ on display in the midst of that valley? That they'll turn to him, they'll cry out to him and experience his joy and his comfort, and his hope, and his peace. Could you pray that be real in their lives as they go through their hardship? And could you pray for them that they would be able to see God's perspective in the midst of it? Not just the immediate need and the rush of emotion that comes when we find ourselves going through times of sorrow or hardship, but that they'd be able to see God's perspective, that they'd really even want that. And can you pray for boldness for them? that in the midst of their struggle, as God becomes very real to them, that they would have courage and boldness to proclaim him and to proclaim the gospel even out of their circumstance to where they can even say, you know, yes, I struggle and yes, this hurts. But man, let me tell you what God has done. You know, maybe that's where you are right now for some of you. You're in the midst of that valley. You know what? You're not in there alone. If you have a relationship with Jesus, it has to feel good today to know that there are people in this room praying for you. They don't have to know your name. They don't have to know your struggle. God knows all that. But isn't it great to know that that there are people that are praying for you? And at the same time, in the midst of that valley, just keep in mind, whether it's a marathon or whether it's a class called Grief Share or whether it's your particular struggle, you're not alone. And there's an end in sight. If you've never given your life to Jesus, maybe the Lord is allowing a certain hardship in your life to show you that you need a Savior. 
And one of the greatest ways he can leverage this struggle for you for good, perhaps, is to ultimately give your life to Jesus. And you can do that right here, right now. And just simply asking Jesus, God himself, to come and to forgive you of all your sin and to save you and to take over. And he'll do it. God, we thank you for the hope that comes through Jesus. 2,000 years ago, there was a man in a cell who'd given his life for the sake of the gospel. He would ultimately pay the highest price, Lord, when he would give his life for the sake of the gospel. But here we are 2,000 years later reading letters that he wrote. Lord, I don't know how all of it works in eternity, but I wonder if he's in heaven just feeling a certain, certain special joy in knowing that his hardships were worth it because people like us are benefiting still today. Lord, in some ways we can be that person to somebody else. When we go through the valley and we trust you and we turn to you and we don't throw in the towel and we don't turn away, but we, we just stay tight with you, God. There's a testimony there. And when you do what only you can do and you give us joy in the journey, Lord, only you can do that. There's a testimony there. And so give us faith to stay in and give us courage to speak out. And in the end, may Jesus be proclaimed. For it's in his name we pray.